Welcome to Your Family Dog, a podcast dedicated to helping families love living with dogs. Hello, and welcome back to Your Family Dog. I'm Julie Fudge-Smith, and I'm here with my co-host, Tina Spring, who has got great news today. Um, for those of you who are following along on, on our journeys in the last year, I will let Tina give the news, but it's really fabulous news. So I was very it, pleased. to. Hear it is fabulous time. news. Yeah. Uh, no evidence of cancer. Yeah. So we're, we're happy about that. The mammogram was not as much fun as you might expect, but we got it done with only one of me asking my Lord and savior to help me, but only once, um, and happy. And I, I so appreciate that instead of a typical, mammogram where you wait to find out, you know, what's going on, that that these, they right away, the radiologist reads it and tells you, you're good. There's no evidence of disease because they probably realize we're all nervous as a cat on a hot tin roof or a pot cake in a vet's office. So I'm stoked that, that Deb is back and that we're going to, we're going to talk more cooperative care. We all have our books. I'm actually teaching this in puppy and adolescent class this week. That's our topic. We hold up our books like people can see them. Right. Yeah, that's what I was just like... about to say. We're all holding up our books as evidence. And it's like, people are like, we're just, you're just going to have to believe us that we all have our books because right. we all need to reference it. Maybe one day we'll do this stuff on YouTube. We'll see. So, <laughs> and then you get to see all of us in our glory. Yes. Glory. So... Glory. glory being a very ill-defined word. Yes. <laughs> So, so the last time we were together, Deb um, gave kind of an overview of, of why we're doing the program. If you haven't, if you haven't listened to episode 200, please go back and do that. This will be episode 201. And we're probably going to pound this out a bunch of times because it's great information for every single dog. Even if your dog is great with veterinary care and grooming and handling, you are one scary experience away from having a problem. So I just think this is great relationship building. So we did step one and two. We're going to pick up on step three. And with that, I will turn it over to our fabulous guest who we love. Oh, well, thank you. And thank you for having me back for part two. That was very nice of you to ask. Congratulations on the good news. That is excellent, excellent news to hear. Um, okay, so I actually had to go dig up my book because I'm like, what was what was step three? Um, even though I've done this so many times, I'm always kind of making little tweaks and changes uh, um, as the way I present something or the way I do it. And the book is now, um, I think I wrote it in 2018, at the end of 2018. Um, so that's a long time in dog training. Sometimes things change. But in looking through it, it's like, yeah, this still holds up. This is still basically what I do. So we had talked about having a place where you do your cooperative care work and making that place like the best place that your animal could imagine being. And I'll probably say dog a lot, but um, any animal, any animal that you can safely physically touch. And even those, if you have to be in protected contact, you can still use a lot of the same techniques. And that's where I got a lot of the ideas actually was working um, with some animals that we had to work through bars in order to be safe with. So finding the place and conditioning that to be positive, um, then working with some impulse control or Zen work, um, getting our, our animals to be still and to just wait for us to do things to them. So getting them to be a little passive in this process, which is hard, especially if you're somebody who's done a lot of positive reinforcement type training, and especially if you've done a lot of shaping, they think they should be doing something all the time. They think they should be offering behaviors. And so now we're saying, well, yeah, but not now. I don't want you to offer behaviors here. Don't be as charged. <laughs> yeah, that's a common issue. I had it with my own animals, and I realized that I needed to instill this, the Zen work um, much earlier in their lives. And that was kind of the, the clue to them when we're at our grooming place, our, our husbandry place, and we're doing some Zen work to start out. That's your context that now I want you to be still. I want you to be passive. Just wait. The reinforcement's going to come to you. You don't really have to do anything okay, for it to happen. And so getting that mindset 
changed. Um, that's why those first two steps are so important. If we just jump in and start with some of the exercises and the handling, um, that can be very confusing for certain animals. So I like to to really get those first two steps in. Um, the third one, um, and I just got done, I just finished up yesterday with a workshop. I did a one-week online workshop on handling. Um, and so that's step three is general handling of, of your animal. How many different ways can you touch them and have them be calm and comfortable? Um, and what we find is petting is one thing. Handling is something completely different that they are very often very suspicious because handling yes. is serious business. Petting is all calm and relaxed and easy. And so they'll say, yeah, I can, my dog will lay upside down and I can hold their feet and I can do this. It's like, uh-huh, until you decide you're going to try to cut a nail. And then all of a sudden it's a whole different experience. I'm so glad you said that because I think I, I get that a lot, but he lets me pet him, but I won't, mm -hmm. he won't get in the bathtub. Right. Well, I think there's this whole aura that goes, there's this shift. Correct. I, I think yes. in, in your personal, in, in the way in which you approach your dog, I think there's a shift in your chemistry. I think there's a shift in your attitude. There's this shift that your dog anticipates. He goes, whoa, I mm -hmm. need to be very, because mom is not relaxed and happy with me suddenly there's this shift towards a more serious approach to me and um i i don't think that we really realize what we're doing and how intuitive our dogs are in that way my yeah. sainted jack russell terrier who is like sweetness Same. and light if i was sitting and thought huh i should cut toenails i don't know what he sensed <laughs> but he would get up and just walk out of the room it was the funniest thing. And I was like, okay, dude, like I didn't look at the toenail clippers. I didn't get up. Like, mm -hmm. so I just, so you'll laugh. I started that. I started just randomly a couple of times today going, huh, I should cut toenails and he'd leave and I wouldn't <laughs> cut toenails. It's a, it is pretty amazing how, it, how sensitive they can be to our intention it's almost before, but we we clearly have to be giving off some signals, but that this is different. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. It turns out to be a good thing because I don't want them to be confused about what's going to happen. I want it to be clear. Now we're doing this. Okay, now we're going to do cooperative care work. Okay, now we're going to play. Um, and we can go back and forth between these things, but I want the I want them to know this is what we're doing now. But it is a it is kind of scary. Um, I have a dog that I swear all I have to do is breathe a certain way. And she knows the next thing that's going to happen in life. Um, because what do they do? They spend a lot of time paying attention to us. Um, so, well, and you have border collies. So they spend a lot of time just staring at you. Yes, they do. <laughs> like, what's she yes, going to do? They well, that, do. Border collies, I swear, are smart. Not that they're smarter than you, Deb, but I swear most border collies are smarter than most of the oh, owners. No, they're smarter than me. Yeah. Next spring, sometime, I'm going to do a webinar on uh, my dog is smarter than me and talk about that that topic and that concept because I've lived with dogs that make me feel so stupid <laughs> and and I realize that there's a lot that actually goes into that so that's a whole other topic but I think it's it's an important one to know that um, your dog knows what's going on around the house and they know when you intend to do something to them um, if I bring up a towel from downstairs that tells my border collie she's going to get a bath <laughs> just because I got a specific towel from downstairs and I don't have to say anything I don't have to do anything else and and then it's like, oh, she knows, you know, she's aware that this is happening next. So, so we, we, we give them credit for being smart about what we intend to do to them. And that's fine. Uh, um, I don't, I don't really want to lie to them and pretend we're going to do one thing and then do another, um, which kind of gets us into the realm of what happens when you absolutely have to do something and you know, it's going to be unpleasant for them. Um, but at the same time, you want to keep doing your cooperative care work and you want to keep growing the trust that that builds between the person and their dog, because it does build a lot of trust. If you let somebody physically manipulate you and handle you, you have to trust them, at least to some extent. Otherwise, you're not going to be comfortable enough to do it. So we really want to build the trust. And then I don't want to tear it all down when it comes the time when I must do this thing and it's going to be uncomfortable for you. Um, and everybody, everybody sees that moment at some point. So what, I, what I'd say is do your cooperative care work. 
even if you must do something that's unpleasant, we try to, to set it up to be different. Um, different context, I will use a, a, a cue that says, hey, we're doing this now. No cookies. It's just we're doing this unpleasant thing to you. That's separate from my cooperative care training. Eventually, I hope they meld together and integrate. But at this stage, when when they're just learning my cooperative care, I can do, you know, four or five cooperative care training sessions a day because mine are only one to two minutes each. And if I have to do something unpleasant, that's just once. So I can overwhelm the unpleasant by sheer number in terms of continuing to do cooperative care in a pleasant way at the level where my dog is comfortable. And if I do that, I eventually will manage to get them to the point of where the unpleasant things. Right. Because those things do happen. Your dog, you know, scratches their cornea and now we have to do eye drops, but oh no, we've never done any cooperative care work or we're only on step two. And the dog mm-hmm. does not think this fun is funny and their eye hurts. Right. right? So right. And that's, I'm like, okay, so we got we got some work to do. <laughs> yeah. And that's a point at which people get, and I understand it. You're like, okay, now what? Am I going to ruin all of this work I'm trying to do? And the answer is, of course, we do what we have to, to keep them healthy. That's the whole point of cooperative care work is that we're trying to keep them healthy. We're trying to see to their physical needs. Um, but as time goes on, this is a longer term process. So if we have short term things set us back, they they do what they do, but we can continue. It's not an excuse to not do the positive stuff. It's not an excuse to keep to stop working the steps and to keep moving forward with that. Because there will come a point and people are shocked, but it happens when you can take um, a pretty big withdrawal out. You can do something that is pretty unpleasant. And you've done so much cooperative care work to build up that they can get past that and move on. And everything goes back to pretty much normal. I had a cat who was injured very badly. And Tricky, I did a lot of cooperative care work with him because anytime I get a species other than a dog, I'm all over that. So we had done a lot of work and he was pretty, pretty okay with it as far as cats go. Um, But then he had a serious injury and he had to have vet visits every three days and he had to have laser treatments and he had to take medications and he had to wear a cone and lots of half two things happened and take, you know, at that moment, none of which are pleasant. (laughs) Yet, while I did what I had to do, I also continued the cooperative care that we'd already set in place. And by the time it was done, it pretty much balanced out and he was still okay with with being handled and still okay with going to the vet. So you can make that difference if you just keep on that path, even though bad things might get in the way. And even though life- I do think of it like a bank account, right? When I'm explaining it to, to a family I'm working with, I'm like, we're putting lots of deposits that are little- in that bank account to have a cumulative effect that's very, very positive. Right. Just takes, and it just takes a couple of minutes, a couple of times a day. Surprising how much it can build up. And it's surprising to me every once in a while you get like that, that surprise interest payment where you didn't even really work for this particular thing, but you got it pretty easily because you've done all the other work. So it's it's worth it to keep going. Like I say, there's a lot of things in, in animal training um, that I've always just enjoyed doing because they're fun. I, I like to teach tricks and I like to do different different kinds of things just because just they're interesting um, and they keep my, my, my dogs busy. But I think cooperative care is probably the best thing we do for any any animal ever, because that directly can impact their quality of life as you move forward. Um, Because as you said, we never know what's going to happen and we need to be ready. So I'd rather start early. If they're not prepared, we still have to do what we have to do. Now they're just not prepared and they're not used to it. (laughs) Yeah. One of the things that I really like that you said is the idea that, you know, you have to do a lot of it. Because I think one of the things that people forget is that one negative thing is not balanced by just one positive thing you know that it's sometimes i mean if you're lucky it's a five to one ratio you've done something positive five times you have a negative thing happen but oftentimes it's a lot more than if you have a sensitive dog or a sensitive cat like i know zuzu is just this incredibly sensitive soul so i have to be very careful because something that's negative to her we're talking 
I got to be doing 10 or more mm. positive things because she is so terribly sensitive. So I think that that you need to understand that that bank account takes a while to build up and you don't want to do withdrawals unless absolutely necessary. It's kind of like when I was teaching um, a really reliable recall. I didn't use the really reliable recall um, when I was, as I was teaching it from like three months because I really wanted to ground it and make sure she understood that, you know, this noise means you come to mom as quickly as possible. And so let's not test it until it's been just reiterated and reiterated, reiterated, positive, positive, positive. And I think the same thing works with cooperative care. I think that's such a good point. And, and I, lots of people think you only have to do it a couple of times and somehow something will be learned. And I've been studying learning and behavior for coming on 40 years now, I think. And it's like, no. You have to have it over and over and over. And I know this for myself, even. I have to learn things over and over and over until I actually get them. And then once I've learned something, try changing it. It's like, uh, no, I'm doing it the same way I always did it a thousand times. Um, we just, not too long ago, we um, our power was out for like four days, which was bad. We had a really bad storm here and it was out for about four days. Do you know how many light switches I, I hit walking around my house? when clearly they're not going to work. Um, but I couldn't stop myself. So, you know, I realized then it's like, you know, so it's going to take me a long time to learn not to hit light switches, even when it's very clear to me that they don't work. And I know why they don't work. So, of course, when the power did come on, every light in the house was on, <laughs> which is what they tell you not to do. But but it's true. And, and negative experiences are so strongly like, consolidated in the, in the brain and in memory much harder, you know, really negative experiences. Um, now we, we get lucky sometimes and you have an animal who's pretty resilient about unpleasant things and they just bounce back and go on. I'm thinking about like my Labrador. Um, she was like, whatever. Yeah, that was unpleasant, but life goes on. Everything's good. We're fine. Um, one of my border colleagues was like that too. The other one, the exact opposite. Any little hint of something that might be unpleasant is strong. And so then we need even more work um, to get over that and get back to baseline to kind of get back to equal takes a lot of time, as, as you say, and you don't want to keep using it and not put more into your bank account. Okay, so you, and, and this can be, you know, people want to know when it's done, it's never done. That's the, the truth. Cooperative care work is Thank never going to be finished. It's always going to be in process, but it'll be a lot easier and you can do a lot less of it. Until you hit a roadblock or, or an issue, which you probably will, and then it'll have to be continued. Um, I remember um, when I was at Shedd Aquarium the one time that they were working with the dolphins on, you know, being able to do blood draws, voluntary blood draws, where the dolphins would flip over and hold still while they manipulated them and, and did all the things, you know, to practice blood draws. And how often do they do that? Every day. Just practice it every day. And then once every so often, they actually take blood. But every day you're doing the training of it that keeps the reinforcement of it strong in your brain and it keeps them happy enough to do it. So we can certainly overwhelm it by numbers if we're right. doing it. I remember Ken Ramirez talking one time um, about they had some otters that they had come in. And for whatever reason, they had to do blood draws almost every day on these otters. Or for whatever reason, they had to do a lot of blood draws because there's something about this particular population. I don't remember the, the, the specifics. What I do remember is he turned to his trainers and said, you need to come up with the most amazing things for these otters to make it fun so that these otters are going to be rewarded so that a blood draw means something really wonderful is going to happen. And so these trainers went all out and they came up with an amazing array of fun things like, you know, like water slide room and, you know, just, uh, you know, different kinds of toys that they found that they really like to play with. And so access to them was all about you have access to this. And then we do a blood draw and we have more access. And it was just, it was a really a beautiful thing of training because they realized they couldn't just rely solely on treats. What they had right. to do was make these otters happy and comfortable with the whole process and to give them a reward that was so over the moon 
it became the blood draws became a positive thing. And and that kind of goes the same thing with what you're saying with cooperative care is if you keep doing this and you're making it a positive experience and a comfortable place to be, then most of the time it's not going to be an issue. And I think that that's something to keep in mind that the more we we use everything that makes our, our animals happy as part of this process, happy and comfortable, the more cooperative they're going to be because they understand that they can trust us and that good things happen when this happens. Right. Uh, yeah. I mean, there's some really creative trainers out there who are very good at those kinds of things. But this is also making me think of something else I'm kind of of related is the giving them the opportunity to say no and to opt out of what we want to do, unless it's absolutely necessary. I want them to know how to end a session, basically. And this is something I see coming up more and more, um, that if they know they can leave, they don't. If you have the option, they're fine. Right. I mean, that mammogram hurt like we the need to Dickens add- today, right? Like yeah. it hurt like Dickens, yeah. and the uh-huh. tech was really great. She was like, "I'm not going to hurt you any more than I have to." She's like, "I have some magic," but she's like, "Also, know that at any time you can tell me, and I can release the machine, and we can readjust, and we'll come at it from a you know another angle." Because yeah, grabbing a hold of all that surgical scar was super fun. But yeah, so I will admit that as a crusty old dog trainer, the idea of giving the the dog the opportunity to opt out was, oh, it stuck in my craw. It -hmm. did. Because I was (laughs) like, because I grew up, you know, with a a good, you tell the dog to do it, they do it. They're a good dog. If they don't do it, sadly, I'm a crossover trainer. You do mean stuff to them until they do it. And then you're like, good dog. So this idea That's the way everybody like, trained back in the oh, day. It's how everybody trained <laughs> yeah. when I was coming up. So thank goodness we learned a better way. But it really did, even even though I'm a positive reinforcement based trainer, like it's stuck in my craw for them to be able to say, no, I'm not, I'm not doing that right now. And then and so it's easy for me to talk to families and say, like, I get it, because I was there. And mm-hmm. someone with an experience is not at the mercy of someone with an idea or, or an opinion and that my dogs opt in way more often because they can opt out. Right. Yes. They still get paid the cookie for the information, which also blows people's mind. I'm (laughs) like, you're not, you're not paying them for the behavior you're paying. I mean, and sometimes you are, but in this case, when I, when I give that dog a reinforcer for saying, Hey, I need a break. I'm thanking them for the information. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And that we need to take that information and say, what was it about what I was doing that led my animal to need to leave the session? Now that's back on me. It's not the animal was a problem because they left. It's like, I'm the problem. It's me. I'm the problem because I did something that caused them to be uncomfortable. And they needed a break. And they told me they needed a break. And so, yeah, I, I will definitely reward that. I will always, you know, give them a cookie. And I, I teach them early on in our training, back to, to being in a place where we train, I teach them how to leave. And I always give them a path to get away. And I always reinforce them for leaving and coming back. And we do a lot of leave, come back, leave, come back, leave, come back before I actually do anything to them. So they know that 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 option of leaving is there and it's it's not that I'm withholding reinforcement from it. It's like now you get reinforced for leaving as well because you need to. I, I was just um had a case in my workshop where she was talking about the fact that the dog would go from freezing to like exploding very quickly. And she couldn't see when that was going to happen. Now if the dog had the option of leaving it wouldn't need to either freeze or get to the explode stage which becomes now we have a case where we're going to need to probably involve a behaviorist because this goes beyond you know just your normal training for cooperative care um so giving them an out so they don't have to panic and they don't become so uncomfortable that they can't manage anymore except by becoming defensive. That's, you know, something that we really need to do. And I think that um, letting them go, <laughs> it, and it's some for some people, it could sort of hurt your feelings. My dog doesn't want to work with me anymore. How could, and it should, 
because I should set up that situation so they want to. And if they don't want to, it's clearly something that I'm doing that, that's making them want to go. Um, so yeah, in, in training sessions, I want them to be able to leave. There may be, again, those real life times when they can't leave. You can't leave in the middle of a procedure. Um, and I'll have to deal with those separately and differently than I do in my training sessions. I want to get them to the point where before I've done anything real specific, I can sort of touch and pot, poke and prod and squeeze and push and pull and do all kinds of physical stuff to my dogs um, on all the different body parts. This is going to give me a good idea, too, of where I'm going to run into trouble <laughs> if I have a body part they don't like. But I start out with very low intensity and introduce touch and handling and different types of touch and handling. I think I came up with like 11 different things when I was working on on list. And um, I know I think I have a list in the book of this as well, of the different ways you might touch your dog. And all of this is simply meant to imitate, what, simulate what might happen to them in the future at a very low level, and then work up to it. Now I can, and then I can grab my dog and I can pinch him and pull on their skin. They're like, yeah, what? Where's my cookie? Because they're so used to that. They're like, oh, we know what happens next. Okay, so you grab my leg. I can do that now. I couldn't. I wouldn't start there. You grab my leg. Oh, so give me my cookies. Where's the, where's the good stuff that's going to happen from this? So they're starting to, touch is starting to predict reinforcement instead of something terrible happening. And that's that takes longer to get to sometimes than we want. And I have so many people who want to go to this specific thing that they're having a problem with. I think we probably touched on this on this before. Yeah, they want to go right to doing nails when they can't even touch the dog's legs. So the whole body handling thing. Or I the think dog is, won't hang yeah. out with them. <laughs> right, right. My dog leaves. That's again, that's giving us important information. And we need to act on that and change things so they don't feel the need. <laughs> to well, leave. and it's funny that little terrier that I was talking about. I mean, he didn't hate getting his toenails done. He was relaxed. We cut toenails like it probably wasn't his favorite thing. But I don't think I ever quicked him. I don't think like we never had a big thing. But he still could tell if I thought about it. <laughs> So my question for you, Deb, is so you have a dog you're working with and the dog decides to leave and you, and as the dog you know, turns their head or moves back. So you're getting the signal, I'm going to leave and you reinforce that and you send them along. So when they choose to come back, do you use the same reinforcer or are you using a better reinforcer for when they decide to return to you? Um, I, I think my answer to this has changed over time. In the past, I might have said I use a better reinforcer for for coming back and staying. But now I think I pretty much would use the same level. I don't want it to seem like to, the, to my dog now that one thing is better than the other. So again, if I have a very, very food motivated dog and I have something they really want, they will stay in the session even though they're getting more and more uncomfortable with it. Um, but they want the food more. So the food is overwhelming the stress and anxiety. And then that's causing major internal conflict. Now, they want one thing and they don't like what's happening, but they want the thing. And, and so they're in a very bad place, kind of mentally and emotionally. And so now I don't want that to be the case. So if you want to leave, you can still have the same level of good stuff. In fact, oftentimes what I'll do... Um, because if I'm using something like spray cheese, I don't want to, you know, it's kind of hard to reinforce once they get too far away from me. So typically I'll take a handful of cookies. If they want to leave, I'll, I'll throw a handful of cookies and tell them to go get those cookies and let them take um, whatever time they need to eat the cookies, sniff around, do whatever. And I'll wait and see if they decide to come back or not. If they decide to come back, we start back into the session. Um, or sometimes they decide to come back, I reinforce them and I end the session, which they're like, hey. I wasn't ready to be done yet, but I'd rather leave them in that state of not wanting to stop than definitely wishing I would stop. Right. You always want to leave them wanting more. That right. This is something, this is really cool. I mean, I, I, what do you mean we're stopping? I, this exactly. would be really great if we continued. Because it, there's such a fine line between I'm here and having a really good time and you can so quickly fall over that line into this is becoming uncomfortable and then from this is becoming uncomfortable to I really hate what's going on. Right. So I think it's much better to make it short, sweet and air on the side of I know you're still having a good time. 
I'm still having a good time than pushing it too far. Correct. Yes. Is that part of what we're using an active release to utilize that we're before the dog says like, I got to go, like I've had enough, I'm out, Um, that we're literally throwing them away and saying, do you feel like coming back or not? Because I kind of think of it that way. Mm -hmm. I'm like, you did one. I'm going to throw you away. If you decide to come back, maybe we'll do another one. Maybe we won't. Maybe we'll do something else. But my goal is always to give them a break. And they're like, I don't want a break. Like, why are we doing a break? Exactly. Yeah. Breaks should be, ending sessions should be the worst part of the whole thing as far as my dog is concerned. Um, and and sometimes I've created them to like the point of maybe a little too much wanting to work, which is a good problem to have, but it's still a problem just, just the other way. But I think of the, of the release, you know, as sort of a boomerang effect, like you're saying, go away. Oh, you want to come back? Okay, we'll do more. Like they have to talk me into it. No, I want you to go away. And they come back. They're like, no, no, really, really, I can do more. My okay, if you really insist, I'll do a couple more repetitions or whatever with you. But I want that. I want them to to feel like they're kind of pushing me to work there. Um, And I also think of it a lot as the pressure release. Let's release the pressure before it builds up to the point it explodes. So release the pressure. And some dogs that might be every 15 seconds or every 30 seconds. Other dogs, it might be, they can go longer and they're like, yeah, I'm cool. Keep, keep going, whatever. But releasing that pressure before it, it blows up and explodes is so important. Um, And then seeing what they do after that. Now, what is their choice? If they don't want to come back at that point, I, I need to give them that break. They clearly need it and will come back fresh later which also gives me time to think about what I might do differently next time. And and people are always thinking somehow that the break is punishing the dog. It's like not even a little, (laughs) not even a little. In fact, they probably need that break a lot. Um, they're, They're expending a lot of mental and emotional energy. And even though you might not see that, that's still exhausting. I mean, think of a day when you've just like, you know, dealt with a lot of stressors that are mental or emotional um, and and you need a break and you need to take some time to just relax and, and chill out and not think about anything hard for a while. So our dogs need the same thing. And, and with cooperative care, sometimes being still is the hard thing. And and being passive is the hard thing for a lot of them. So giving them a break from that and letting them move out and do whatever they need to do, I think is important. And and so I want to incorporate all of that, you know, those, those releases in particular into my handling a ton. And if I get, even if they don't want to go or if they, they, they kind of pull back, but then they come back again and I can tell they're just starting to get a little iffy about something, just do a release. See what happens next. That leaves it in the dog's paws. And that's kind of scary because they get to decide the next event. But I think it's important. Again, that idea of feeling, of trusting you and feeling confident and feeling like they're not going to be forced into something really unpleasant. And we want to build all that in these early steps as much as we can um, before we do the specific things where we we may need to to push them a little harder and challenge them a little more. We want it to be really, really easy first, and then we can make it harder. We well, you know I see when you were talking about that is is when I'm when I'm working on a book when I'm writing if I if I find that I'm, I'm stalling out what I will oftentimes do is do a process where I set a timer and I write for 20 minutes when the timer goes off I force myself to take a 10 minute break and then I write for 20 minutes 10 minutes break and I do that four times so it covers two hours and that's usually okay I'm done for the morning. Mm-hmm. And then I take a real significant break. But what I find is my my energy, my creativity is fueled by these timed things and by that built-in break to get up, walk around, right. get a drink of water. And so when I think about how much, how effective that is for me, same thing for, for dogs or for our pets is that Give them that chance to take a breath, to reset themselves and come back to it. And you're going to be a lot more successful because it works. It works for anybody, I think, who's sort of got a couple of crania or a couple of cells up there (laughs) moving around. It really, yeah, I think those breaks are so important, which just all of a sudden it came to me. It's like, this is why I have my all my good ideas in the shower. 
because I've kind of let my brain go and stopped pushing at whatever it is that I've been working on. And then it's like, oh, now I got to get out of the shower really fast so I can write this down before I forget it. But that's a whole nother problem <laughs> that I have. But that's I think true. Yeah, it's like, again, like I, I say that learning happens between sessions. And, you know, what you're talking about here is a little bit of the good ideas also happen between sessions, between between efforts, you know, so learning is constantly going on, but it's not always happening the way people think it does. It's not like we need, you know, these hour sessions. They told me when I first started dog training, I needed to do an hour every day. And that was common advice. And I did. Yeah, and that's, it's just exhausting, <laughs> yeah. exhausting for you, exhausting for the dog. And oftentimes it, it is those breaks that, that your, your brain has a chance to, to really focus on and, and think about and gel these new ideas into something that becomes a learned behavior. And so I think you need to sort of practice it mentally and let your brain, you know, do this stuff. Yeah, and we're talking about a lot of um, what I would consider conditioning rather than behavioral skills kinds of learning, which means we're trying to change how you feel in this whole process. And, and changing emotions is is a little different than just teaching a dog uh, a behavior like a sit. Um, I still want them to feel good about it, but it's a little different when we get into some of this more internal work. I think that we're doing. Um, and somebody was asking me, because we were talking about stillness and how important stillness is for what we do. That, And I'm always wanting to reinforce stillness because I need them to be still. As I said, I want them to be relatively passive so I can do all the procedures. And eventually other people can do all the procedures that need done. And they're just kind of chilling out, relaxing. And, they're, and the person asked me, which I think is a good question, but um, if I'm reinforcing them for being still, how do I know that they're calm and that they're not freezing or that they're... Well, they're... you're watching respiration and you're watching their <laughs> pupils and you can feel, are they still or are they stiff as a board, right? Um, if, if if I could pick the dog up by the tip of their tail and they're completely <laughs> stiff, that's not relaxed. If they're holding their breath, I mean, just, I tell people all the time, just, is your dog breathing? Yeah. People don't pay attention. They see the basic thing that they're looking at and that's enough. It's like, okay, right. that was, that was fine. So um, one of, one of my dogs does something we call doing relaxed. He's like, I'm relaxed. And I'm like, you're not relaxed. You have crazy eyes. You're not relaxed. He's like, I could do relaxed this way, right? Lots of free shaping. So I had to like put the marker mm -hmm. in the marker in the drawer, put the clicker away and like, not even a verbal marker just like when he was still slide a kibble over. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and that is, that is, a, and as I said, we talked about before a common thing, my border collie Zen, who got me into a lot of the Zen work because he was not Zen at all. He was a very, very active dog, always wanting to do, always thinking, always trying to, to kind of outthink me to do the next thing before I even, you know, could ask him for it or think about it. And yeah, he was lying down. Was he calm? Absolutely not. But I would take the position. So my, my point was with, with the person talking about this, we get what we see on the outside. And that actually eventually can make changes that are internal. You don't have to feel calm to be still. You can be still and it eventually leads you to being calmer. So it goes both ways, okay? And, and it's a reciprocal thing that goes on here. We get you to do this thing and your feelings will change. Your emotions, your arousal level will all change um, to some I, I think extent. It in terms of, of doggy ambiance, you know, what I want is um, when, I, you know, I'm watching the movie or whatever, I love doggy ambiance. I love having my dogs just laying around and being there. And what I learned very quickly was to reward that I couldn't want to stop clicking because then we're like, what? Yeah. <laughs> okay. What am I doing? Yeah. This is so great. And so, and, or, and then we're tossing the treat. So when Tina said, you know, you very slowly slide the kibble, you know, exactly. I would do the Thing. you're all zen i'm just gonna quietly give you this because if we do it with any degree of enthusiasm we're gonna lose our doggy ambiance and we have to start all over again 
Right. And that's, I think that's something that a lot of dog trainers sort of see it. And we don't always know how to address it um, because it gets, it goes beyond people who teach a behavior, change in behavior to how do we get the corresponding internal change as well. Um, and so, and, and some animals, it's going to be easier than others. There are some that it's always going to be challenging because they always want to be active. They always want to be doing, and we may have unintentionally encouraged that a heck of a lot when they were young, which again, now I'm more about that balance between action and stillness very early on in my puppy's life so that they know there are different times when each are appropriate. I think I went through a phase where it was all action, 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 and they loved it. But then these other things became harder, you know, um, as, as we went along, there were certain things that became harder because I had encouraged that. And because I had dogs who were already had the tendency to do more things. And so it depends on the dog's tendencies as well. You know, you get those dogs that are pretty inactive and calm. Great. Okay. They're going to take to this very naturally because it goes along with how they already are. It's the ones that, you know, we have the mismatch of the state we'd like them to be in and their normal state of being that we run into trouble, but those are the extremes. And if you're in the mid range, you can be changed a little bit. We can, we can move you along and getting you still is the first step. I don't even care if you're calm. I will work for that, but still got to get it work on still got to hold, you know, hold feet still as much as we can. That's why I like taking the food to them instead of them moving to the food. I want you moving as little as possible in this process so that you start to just settle in you're going to be here. We're going to do this thing, but it's just, just relax for a second, you know, or a few minutes, usually tops when we're working on that. So then um, the other steps then get into the more specifics of the, the common things like, you know, eye drops and, and, and drops in the ear, working, you know, brushing the teeth, doing the nails eventually. So those kinds of things are going to come up on a regular basis. They're the most common types of things that need to be done. And so then once we've got stillness and we've got, you know, I can handle you pretty much all over, then we can move in to those things um, a lot more easily. Then if we just try to jump right in, restrain the dog, as I work on restraint with handling, um, and I want them to learn being restrained, it's like, eh, it's okay. It's not great. I don't love it, but it's not horrible. I don't have to fight about it either. I'll just hold still because you'll let me go pretty soon, and it'll all be fine. Uh, so I want them to get the hang of that. Do you have hints for trying to, like, I can't lift the 90-pound Doberman to do that laying him on the side thing. So I'm just teaching him a layout flat cue, mm -hmm. um, which I have a funny, so I taught him a head rest, a chin rest. Yeah. I want to talk about the chin rest too. So when I they went to do his blood draw, I was like, all you have to do is this and then feed him kibble at his face. That's mm -hmm. it. And he'll let you do the blood draw. And they were like, no. And I'm like, yeah, no, he'll do it. <laughs> like you're not even going to have to restrain him. And it was funny because they come back 20 minutes later and they're like, you need to warn the person that he just gives them his head, right? Like, so <laughs> big, he, heavy head, <laughs> right? He doesn't hold it up. Like he turns into a noodle. So they had to get a stool to hold the tech's hand up so that they could feed the Doberman while he was getting his blood draw. But they did a blood draw and he never turned and looked nothing. He was just like, there's kibble. I'm good. Mm -hmm. Like my, my yeah. mom thinks this is funny. But when I was reading about like trying to do that, that cantilever, like knock him over yeah. on his side, no, I was like, gonna... I'm not going to be able to, like, right. I can't do that. <laughs> no, you can't pick him up and lift him. And you can lift, you can do one end or the other, but you can't lift the dog. I mean, I've, I've done that where I kind of pick up the back end and put a little weight on the front feet, put him down. Pick a front end for a little, just a little bit. Just so I'll they have get to try that with him. Kind of I assume picking them off balance a little bit. Um, and then so having don't them panic about that if that okay. will happen because there will be somebody somewhere at some point who that tries it. it. <laughs> yeah. So again, I'd rather they were sort of used to that, and that it goes into that place in their brain that's oh, people do this to you <laughs> every once Weirdos. in a while. It happens. <laughs> yeah, we, exactly. It's weird, but it's what they do to you. So I'm not going to fight it, and I'll just go with it. Because um, typically, when they tell you that your dog's been good at the vet, what they mean is they didn't fight them. 
Um, so that's good enough. I'll take that. And um, yeah, the chin rest. Let me let me mention, talk about that a little bit because I think that's that's such a vital kind of a central exercise to everything that we do. Is um, dog? I, and I start out just with I put out my hand, palm up, and I want to teach my dog to put their muzzle in my hand and I feed them there over my hand a lot. Um, I eventually work that up to both hands, um, either hand, both hands together, thumbs go up over the um, muzzle a little bit. Um, and then I start to teach them to put their chin on other things, other parts of your body, like your thigh or your leg, um, on my lap, on a pillow, on a towel, on a stool. Um, and what happens is if you teach a good chin rest, they will do it everywhere. They generalize this chin rest behavior really well. My dogs do it when they want something from me and they want my attention. I'll just look over and they'll be like, a wizard will be over there just chin resting, looking at me like, can I come up here now? And I'm like, dude, okay. Whatever. Mine do it with each other. Like oh. if the terrier makes somebody mad and wants the toy they have because he was pressuring them and that wasn't going to work, then he, he yeah, chin rests and wag. Yeah, I it's was a like, okay, thing. I don't know that he knows that one. <laughs> exactly. I don't know that they understand, but they seem to know that they can use it to get things to happen, which I find kind of fascinating and I don't know why. But it to me, it's a great exercise because it's voluntary stillness here's and and here they're being a little more active they've got something they can do now they have a, a behavior they can focus on i keep my chin here and once they learn that man they're really good at it and it makes everything as you said so much easier i mean we can do blood draws we can do you know vet exams all kinds of stuff with the chin rest um and um i've found it to be valuable over and over and over again and i found that my dog's fun. chin rest on each other <laughs> um, I really tried to take this to a bit like Clemmy, if she, if they want to snuggle and Zuzu's lying there, Clementine will chin rest on Zuzu. <laughs> and then it could be vice versa. They, they use yeah. each other to chin rest. You know, I need to perhaps start rewarding this a little bit more often and make this a little bit, but it's, it's super cute. I, yeah. I, I, oh, I they, yes, the chin rests are very cute. I just like the. I love how they offer them when they when they seem to want something. That just kills me. Yes. It's like they somehow know this is a communication method. This is a way that we're going to communicate with each other. And so I love that that they they seem to do that. And if you teach a solid chin rest, especially if I do one like um to a pillow in my lap or on a stool or something, now I have both my hands free for other things I might need to do like eardrops and eye drops and brushing point. teeth. The rest can, can hold them steady and solid. So I have to keep that strong and valuable and I reinforce it a ton, but I use it in a lot of different situations. Um, so it becomes a, a really valuable tool. And also it tells me if my dog can't maintain a chin rest, something's going wrong here. They're I'm pushing too hard. They're becoming uncomfortable. So it it's like, to me, it, it it's, one of the consent signals they can give me. They can tell me with the chin rest. If they're chin resting comfortably, okay, I can keep doing what I'm doing. If they're not, I need to stop and, and regroup and come back at something that's easier or in a different way. Um, so I think that the chin rest is one of those behaviors. It just pays off over and over again in, in lots of ways. It's it's cute. It's fun. I use it for um, retrieve training as well. Um, so getting the using the chin rest to, to have put the object in my hand rather than drop it somewhere, take it out of my hand, put it back in my hand um, works great for that, too. And I think that's actually one of the places I started using it first before I started using it in cooperative care. Um, and so I even use it to come, you know, sit by my side and put your head on my chin, depending on the size of the dog. If I get a pappy on, that's going to be a little harder. <laughs> But that's that's to me, yeah, that if you want to teach one behavior that'll give you a lot of payoff, it would definitely be the chin rest with, with cooperative care with other things as well. It, it'll just come up in, in a way. So step four starts with that lovely chin rest. Okay, good. <laughs> and then we were on to the head. Yes. Yes. And we have a lot that goes on there because um, you get into examining ears and eyes which you have, you know, somebody manipulating really close around your face and in moving your ears, um, lights in your eyes, 
you know, working up to the drops, which we start with drops on the head and drops on the muzzle, just drops of water before we ever put drops anywhere else. So we have all all of that that we can work on. Um, And lots of times animals have already had really bad associations, especially with eardrops. It seems to be common that eardrops happen and they're done very poorly and it already hurts and now you're fighting um, and that does not go well a lot of times. So you end up pretty far in the hole before you even start working on this sometimes. Um, and, and there's a lot of little tips and tricks for for getting medication into ears that might be a little more comfortable, especially when it's the one of those, I absolutely have to do it kind of things. There are drops now that the vet can put in that last for a month and take the place of daily drops. Um, you can soak whatever you're using, um, a cotton ball, and use the cotton ball to kind of rub in the ear as opposed to putting drops way down in. You do the best you can with some of these things, but there are ways that that we can sometimes get them in without so much trauma. As once they've already been traumatized by something, that body part may always be sensitive or that procedure may always be poisoned. And so we have to just do the best we can to work around it. Um, no matter, you know, you, we can't ever assume that we can completely turn things around a thousand percent and that they hated something, then they're going to love it. I get, if I can get to, you hated it and you will tolerate it most of the time, I'd be pretty happy with that. Um, we can't expect them to love everything we do to them any more than we love every medical thing that's done to us, you know, no matter how much they reinforce me, (laughs) we're not going to love certain things. It's just the way that it is. We do things that we have to, we tolerate them and we move on. And so sometimes we may need to just go with tolerance depending on what it is. Okay. Um, but and I don't want people to to beat themselves up thinking that if it's not perfect and the dog doesn't love it, they're doing everything wrong because that's not not usually the case. There are just things that are always going to be challenging, no matter how long you work on them. They're still going to be challenging because that initial learning was so strongly unpleasant that overcoming that is is a lifetime's worth of repetitions. So we do as much as we can to get done what we what we can and then we you know we just move on and and keep going we don't it, we don't give up because that doesn't make it better okay so yeah chin rest head stuff um mouth working with the mouth um there's a whole bunch of steps even to that people often are, are it's recommended they brush their dog's teeth in some way or keep them clean in some way but we're not given any really good information on how do you do that and so if you go at it with like a toothbrush and toothpaste it's probably not going to end well it's not going to be something that your dog's going to enjoy so you know there's like a hundred little steps the other day I was here um and somebody was bathing their dog and while their dog was in the bathtub, they were using a, a motorized toothbrush to do their dog's to- teeth. And I was like, holy guacamole, like, <laughs> that's super smart. Like, got the dog used to that. And the dog was like, okay, whatever. Like, you could yeah. just see the dog was like, she does this. She's the weirdest mom ever. But I thought, <laughs> okay, bully you. Like, good job. Yeah, actually, I find those um, vibrate the vibrations from the toothbrush can be really helpful. Also, when you're conditioning the sound of the nail grinder, that I use the toothbrush instead. I get like a little in baby one, the smallest one I can find that you can still stick in a battery and turn it on, and it makes some noise and it vibrates. And I use that to condition first before a nail grinder, and to the point where I have it in my hand, I put the bristles in my hand, and then I put my hand on my dog's foot um, because then a little bit of that vibration that they're going to feel much more strongly with the grinder starts to come through. So I like to, I've got a toothbrush, a couple of them sitting over here right now that I use regularly for things like that. Um, so getting them used to vibration with clippers and grinders, that's that's a good way to go about it is with the toothbrush as well. Um, but the, yeah, I, using it, I like, and I, you know, when I'm doing my dog's teeth, I use the, the things you put on your finger um, that, that have, they're already pre-soaked in whatever. And you just stick it over your finger and then you put it on all, you know, rub it all around the dog's teeth. Uh, The main thing that we're trying to do is to, you know, keep tartar from building up, especially on the teeth towards the back um, up at the gum line, because that that becomes the problem. A lot of people 
want to start getting into the dog's mouth and inside the teeth. And you don't need to do that. Vets will tell you, you don't need to get inside the teeth. If you could do the outside, you're doing good. And so teaching a dog that I'm going to open your mouth, I'm going to put my fingers in your mouth. Um, I'm going to rub my fingers along your gums and teeth. I'm going to use something else like a toothbrush or some um, cleaner of some sort. And, and, all of those things I like to introduce separately, one at a time, let them get used to one thing before we go on to the next. Um, so it can be a little bit of a process. But again, then that all goes into that, hopefully that bucket of weird things people do to you sometimes. And it usually works out okay. So let them <laughs> because it's not a big deal. Um, and so that that can be uh, you know, a process all in its own as we start to get into some of these procedures going to take a little bit of time. And I think one of the things that I've been good at is breaking it down so that I can see all the little steps and talk to people about breaking it down because people people lump. They go for I want to you know, they they try to do the whole thing or they try to do half of the thing. And I'm like, "No, no, no. Let's do this teeny tiny little bit. Let's touch the outside of your dog's muzzle with one finger." Can you do that there? Can you do that front of the muzzle? Can you do it on the other side? Can you do it at the back? Okay, so now let's lift up that lip just slightly. Can you do that? And I and I work on, on all around the mouth. When I was writing the book, I actually remember I was sitting here writing and I had um, my Border Collie star was laying here next to me and I'd write something and I'd reach over and I'd stick my finger in her mouth. I go, oh yeah, I like that. And then I'd write it down and then I'd reach over and I'd do something else to her mouth. And I'm like, yeah, that was what I did next. That worked. And she's finally got up and left. She's like, what the heck? Because <laughs> it was a weird setup for her to be, uh, for me to be shoving my fingers in her mouth when she's trying to take a nap on the sofa. Um, but that's kind of like those little bits. Can I touch a tooth? Okay. Can I, can I pull that side way up? Can I pull both sides up with one hand? So I've got, I can make anything into a million baby steps and that's why it's successful because the, the smaller you break it down, the easier it is for them to do, the more you're building success on success. And when you make it bigger, it's like nothing. Yeah, we've done that. We've done something similar to that so many times. So I think that breaking it down, when in doubt, go back to make it easier. Always. I think that is a great piece of advice and a really good summary of what cooperative care is all about. It's making the care you need to do for your dog in putting it into ways in which they can accept and then building those ways together so that they can accept the care that you need to give to them. So uh, that's a great summary of oh, cooperative thank you. care. I really <laughs> like that. Because well, I, I remember we should that like stop talking then before I say something. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, actually, we are kind of near the end. So actually, that was a great summary to, to wrap oh, this yeah. up. Is there something in particular that you feel like we haven't covered that you really would like to say to our listeners? Um, that's a good question. We've covered a lot, but I guess my usual, the things I think about is when in doubt, um, go back, as I just said, and go slowly. Slower is always better. We're, we tend to be in a hurry to get to the final goal of whatever it is we're working on, but that's not what's going to make us successful. Um, being faster at it doesn't gain you anything if you haven't built in kind of comfort your dog's comfort at each step and each stage. So pay attention to your dog's comfort. Go slowly. That That's what I would keep saying to people over and over again. So, so if people are working through their cooperative care book and they have questions trying to split, you know, they're like, I've made the, small, the, the steps as small as I possibly can. I don't understand why this isn't working. Um, what are some good resources for them? Yeah, because you can always make it smaller. I swear we can always make something smaller than you think. Um, so the probably the best place to, to start would be my Facebook group. Um, Cooperative Care with Deb Jones is the name of the Facebook group. And if you go on there, then I have all kinds of resources that are available to you that you can hear about and find out about from there. And you have people who give Tons of great advice, lots of support. We have lots of veterinary professionals, lots of professional trainers there who are very free with, with being helpful. And so I'd say that's the place to go. Just ask to, to join. Make sure you answer all the 
questions, the three questions. And we are very happy to have people come in there and we will set you on the right path from that point forward. And I, and I do love that sometimes people give kind of unconventional answers where somebody comes at something from a completely different direction that we're all like, well, why the heck didn't we think of that? Exactly. Um, and I also love that when people come in and are like, yeah, so 14 people held my dog down and we clicked all of his toenails, but he, I really want him to like toenail cutting that we all apply a filter yes, <laughs> and go, welcome. We love you. It's going to be a little <laughs> bit of a journey. And that really there's not a lot, there's no judgment. I love that judgment is not tolerated on the group that, that you are welcome, whether you're talking about a rabbit parrot, a dog, a cat. I'm kind of surprised we don't get more questions about kids. But frankly, if you've done this work with your dog and your cat, I use it with, um, I do a lot of family dog work. And I have done a ton of it for for teaching children, I'm going to hold the washcloth, wipe your own face, right? Right. Like, or toenail and fingernail cutting. Like I've, this book has truly changed my life. And I know that I keep saying that to you, but it has, it's changed how I do anything because I really do go, you know, we got a better, there's a better way to do this. There is, there, there always is. And I think sometimes our first tendency is to just push things and force things to get something done that we want done. Um, And we all fall into that sometimes, but yeah, you're right in the group. We don't tolerate people who are not going to be kind and supportive. So no matter where you're coming from, we will gently push you in the right direction. Yeah. And we will and I'm very careful about the comments that are made and 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 whether cuz if you're feeling defensive you can't learn anything. No. And so the whole goal is is information and knowledge and support. So if we're not doing that then then the, the whole purpose of the group is is being violated. And so I mean- that's well, Maybe you've had to delete a bunch of comments, but it um, has never appeared that way. It always you here and there. Yeah. People come wanting to help. I do think sometimes one of the reasons that people are so passionate is because they've screwed it up before too, and they realize all the damage they did. Yes. Um, and they're not judging that other person. They're really judging themselves. That they're like, I can't believe I made those same mistakes. Um, We are hardest on ourselves. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. And we've all been there. Like, I'm a crossover trainer. I did a bunch of things as a young trainer that I would never do today because I learned better. Right. And I'm I'm grateful that I don't get punished and reminded every single day (laughs) about everything I've ever screwed up. That would be a pretty crummy way to learn. So. Exactly. That's there's no point in that. So, so what's yeah, coming up I, next for Dr. Jones? Oh, I'm going on vacation. <laughs> oh, good for you. Good for I have you. not. Yeah, I, I I I go on vacation quite a bit, but I'm actually planning on a um hopefully mostly social media free vacation. So I think nice. it's time for a little reboot. So I'm going to the mountains in North Carolina for a few well, weeks. So what about professionally? What are you working on? What project are you that's, working on? Yeah, that's a good question too. Um, I've got a couple webinars that will be coming up after the first of the year um, that I'm working on. The other thing, the bigger project that I've I've had going on for a while and I'm still doing is um, an instructor certificate for cooperative care work. Oh, I love that. So I've been going, through, you know, I've been thinking about it for quite a while. I've talked to some people about it a little bit determining what that's going to look like, what's going to be involved if you wanted to get a certificate from us as an instructor, as opposed to you can get a certificate now, you know, as a team with your dog. Um, And we have the four levels of cooperative care certificate for that. But I think that there's a a need out there for as an instructor, at least I could say I know this person knows what they're doing. I mean, there are a lot of people out there who I think do know what they're doing and and they're very good trainers. And if they'd like to be able to say, yeah, I've gone through this whole process. Um, So that would involve teaching people as well, coaching people through the process, as well as the actual knowledge of learning and behavior and being able to show that you can do the training yourself. So there's a lot of aspects to that. 
I've never liked a lot of, of different kinds of certifications where it's all like a knowledge test. I think it needs to be, there needs to be real application yeah. that we can see that, yes, you can do it yourself and you can teach other people how to do it. If you're going to know, and to know when it's like that dog you were talking about earlier, where you're out of your depth and it's more significant. This is right. trauma. This right. is different than the dog was uncomfortable. Exactly. That, and that's there are times when we really do need to know that we need to refer out to somebody um, yes. more specific. So anyway, that's going on with me. So that's kind of the what I'm cool. thinking about for the rest of the year. And then we'll see what next year brings. It's always a surprise. You never well, know. Thank you for coming on and, and sharing your knowledge with us. We'd love to have you back another time sometime. Thank you so much. You guys have been great. So much fun to talk well, to. Thank I've you. We really have enjoyed it very much. And uh, we hope that uh, we'll see you all here on uh, Your Family Dog real soon. Thanks for listening to Your Family Dog. Got questions? Interesting ideas? Visit www.yourfamilydogpodcast.com to share your thoughts.